Well, good morning. We're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different this morning as we, rather than just have me lead out in prayer, we have some significant prayer needs. And um, I, I don't think any of them are surprises. One newer one, but Pat Scarfo Jr., uh, who had a heart transplant two weeks ago, has um, had a lot of bleeding internally, and they think they finally got it stopped yesterday, but that's a significant concern and need. So we want you to be remembering Pat Scarfo. Pat and Helen, his mom and dad, are here, part of our church. You folks know them. But this is their son, Pat, who needs, needs us to pray. And then we've been praying quite a while for uh, Bob and Karen Kirby's granddaughter, Eliana, two years old, with some serious kidney issues and um, all of that affect inflammation of her whole body. And we, we just really need to cry out to God for Eliana Kirby. And, and then we, we got word this week, um, an update from Barb Engel, the chemotherapy drug that she has been on has worked well, but it has compromised her immunity to the point that she's going to have to try a different treatment. And she just needs wisdom to make that decision. She's supposed to make that decision by this Wednesday, so three days. And so Barb Engel, long, long, long time member here at Heritage Baptist Church. And here's what we're going to do different, folks. I'm going to encourage you just where you are to pray with the person next to you or just the two people on either, however you'd like to do that. Don't, don't get up and move around. And if you're not comfortable with that, just right where you are, you can talk to God. But we just felt the need this morning to really cry out to God. And I don't want to minimize others. Uh, we've been praying for Jean, who's undergoing uh, treatment for cancer. And Mike's story, of course. Uh, um, Susan Lacoe, others that are on the prayer sheet that we have. And uh, we're not minimizing those in any way. But these three, it just if we'll take just a couple of minutes together to cry out to God, Pat Scarfo, Barb Engel, and Eliana Kirby. Would you do that? And I'll close and we'll open the word this morning. Let's pray together.
Father, we are grateful today that we can gather as your church and pray and bring these folks that we've mentioned for Pat, for Eliana, for Barb, to you. God, what a beautiful, beautiful sound to hear your people crying out to you for healing for these three and others, Lord. And um, God, I, we know they're in your hands. We know you are the great physician. We know that you can heal. And so we pray for that. Pray for the family members who bear that burden. Who are worn out. And struggling and overwhelmed, God, would you bring peace? Would you bring confidence? Would you bring the comfort that only you can give to their hearts and minds? And I pray, God, now that as we open your word, that you would direct our thinking to understand what it is that you tell us in your word, in the Bible. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, um, I'd encourage you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, we'll have that on the screen for you, but um, if, if it helps you to look at it, that would be a good thing, and you can take some notes. But um, in studying this week, uh, I was reminded of, of these verses, actually, uh, it's, it's something that our pastor, when Jane and I were in Chicago as youth pastor, uh, I heard from him numerous times. I've only ever heard it from him, and I couldn't remember where the reference was. And, and uh, our team helped us in our staff meeting this to remember to find it. But here it is, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And he's saying, now what does that have to do with the leadership of the church? Well, here's what these verses teach. They teach that it is better to wear suspenders and a belt rather than just a belt. Does that make sense? Let me see the verse again. Remember, it is better to wear suspenders and a belt than just a belt. Here's the verse. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for the labor. For if they fall, <laughs> one will lift up his companion, but woe to him is alone when he falls. All right? There you have it. You say, still, now I'm even more concerned. What does that have to do with church leadership? Well, here's what it has to do. Actually, uh, the verse is teaching on the value of friendship in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can study through that two are better than one, and actually uh, three are even better. And Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So in our study, who's in charge here? As we've been talking about the leadership of the church, of the local church. Uh, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about that, and certainly an application, and that's what I said, an application, not the interpretation, but it, certainly an application of those verses in Ecclesiastes would be for your pastors. Two are better than one. That will fit nicely into our understanding of the leadership of the church, but two or three or four or more will be even better as it relates to the pastoral leadership of the church. So this morning, I want you to understand what the Bible teaches about the shared leadership of the local church. 
Now, you're not going to hear anything brand new. It may be sound a little different because I want you to think a little differently as we talk about the shared leadership of the local church. You say, well, what is that? And we're going to get into that this morning. So open your Bibles with me, please, to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And we're going to look at uh, the uh, church at Antioch for just a minute. And, and I'm going to encourage you to take notes. I try to do that all the time. And, and some of you say, well, I'm not a note taker. Well, however you do it, write stuff down, circle stuff in your Bible, um, your phone, your tablet, whatever that may be. But, but get some of these scriptures down. And, and I want to encourage you to really study on your own. Read through. And, and we sometimes think we've got to be seminary student, graduate, whatever, to understand the scripture. That's just not true, folks. I mean, that's a great help. I'm not minimizing that, but you can study. Read through, and that's where it starts. You can't study if you don't read the Bible. Dig into the Word of God on your own. Compare scripture with scripture because that's the best way to understand what God teaches us. So Acts chapter 11, if you don't have a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible, and that is on page 767, Acts chapter 11, and verse 19. Now, as we talk about that, I want to I read through this for you, and uh, we're going to look at this business of shared leadership. And the first thing I want you to know is that shared leadership is about plurality. It's about plurality. Now, for some, that's a, that's a bad word. Um, seriously, it's not, but for some it is because of, I think, some misunderstandings of what we've had of Scripture over the years. So as we think about plurality and as we talk about this, here we are. That's the first thing that I want you to know about shared leadership as we talk about that. And so as we look at Acts chapter uh, 11 and starting at verse 19, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Notice that Antioch, because we're going to get to that in a minute. And let me just say to you, if you would go back when it says, those had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, if you went back to chapter 7 of the book of Acts, you would find Stephen's speech, it's typically called, and at the end of his challenge to the Jews who were listening, the Jewish audience, he was stoned. He was murdered. And Saul was there, giving assent to that. And then we get into chapter 8, and it says, on that day, a perse great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, I don't know about you, but in my study this week, my reading has always been, as I read that, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when it says, and all were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, I just kind of thought that that was the church. The church was scattered. And as I began to think and study this week and do some reading, I thought, you know what? That doesn't make sense. In fact, I came across some reading and said, the church, when we keep going on, we find the church in Jerusalem continued to exist and continued to grow. So who were the all who were scattered when the persecution? Now, I'm not going to dig too deeply into this, but as you read through the book of Acts, you, you ought to be comparing Scripture with Scripture. And that's why here in chapter 11... It refers back to who were those all? Well, I think there's a good chance that the all were the six or seven. Now, there would only be six left because Stephen would stone men that were chosen to wait on the tables. Stephen was one of those. He was just stoned. He was murdered. And then we read about Philip and then the other five that were with him. And I think there's a good chance that it was at least those six men who were scattered about, except the apostles, the church continued to exist. It stayed in Jerusalem. Just something for you to think through, because here in verse 19 of Acts 11, now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word 
only among the Jews. The interesting thing is, if you would read Acts chapter 6 and read the account of the choosing of those seven men full of the Holy Spirit, we call them kind of the, the precursor of, of the deacon. It doesn't say they were deacons, but it appears that that's probably the role that they took on in, in the church in Jerusalem. Well, what we know is that one of those men, Nicholas, was from Antioch. And there's, a, I think, a good chance that he's one of the, those who, because of the persecution, was scattered and went to Antioch and they planted a church. Back to verse 20 of Acts 11. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. We have a church being planted in Antioch. All right? We typically think the church plants didn't begin till Paul and Barnabas went out in Acts chapter 13, but certainly there were other churches that were planted along the way, and, and here's the church in Antioch. We find verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to Antioch when he arrived and saw that the, what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The church begins. But look what Barnabas does. Barnabas then went to Tarsus. He recognized Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, notice, met with the church. People are just getting saved, and Paul and Barnabas are discipling those new believers. They are helping to build the church. They're called a church. They're there. And then we see, and uh, they met with the church, taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Interesting. Um, Christians wasn't a good thing to be called. It was a, it was a putting down. It was not used uh, in a positive term, but it's a great term, we know, because the idea of representing Jesus Christ. Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Jerusalem was, as we talk about, there's a lot of churches these days that have satellite churches or campuses, and that's a I, that, you know, a good thing, but, but we, we sometimes refer to the main one as the mothership, all right? And, and Jerusalem was kind of like that here. It was the main church, the first church. That's where it all began in Acts chapter 2. And so they, uh, a, a prophet, Agabus, had come down from Jerusalem and, and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. I want you to notice elders, plural. Elders of where? The church in Jerusalem. That's what we know from the context. Agabus came from Jerusalem. Yes, it was Judea, but that's where Jerusalem was, and, and it pretty common thing to understand that they were taking that money, sent that money, the offering for the famine relief, to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because they were the leaders of the church. And so here's the first time we find in the, uh, the book of Acts that Luke refers to any leadership of the local church by name. Earlier in Acts chapter 6, he called the apostles who when the church in Jerusalem had a disagreement, we were through that a few weeks ago with the, 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 the um, women, widows who were being, uh, there were two groups of widows, the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews, and the Greek Jews were being neglected and there was a problem arose, and the apostles who were functioning as the pastoral leadership at that point they said, why don't you choose seven men from among you to serve those widows? And that's exactly what happened. So that's who we're talking. This is the first place, though, that the term elders are used. And it's used in the plural. 
because we're talking about shared leadership as a plurality, referring to the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is about 12 years. Here in Acts chapter 11, the church at Antioch is about 12 years after the church began in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. And so we say, well, how did that happen? How did the elders in Jerusalem, how were they chosen? We don't know that. Uh, scripture doesn't tell, but it's obvious that now, 12 years later, the church was functioning. They had leadership that initially had been the apostles. Now they were called elders. And as we also studied, we found out that in that whole concept of pastoral church leadership, the term for pastor, for overseer, for, or bishop, depending on the translation, shepherd, they're all referring to the same person, what we typically today call the pastor or the pastors of the local church. And so there's a number of scriptures. Let me point out to you here. Uh, Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. And if you want to write, we've got these for you. And I know there's, if you're taking notes, there's quick to try to get them down. And, and so we're going to look at a few of them. And I'll put it up for you again as we move through here. But Acts 14, 23 and Acts 15, 2, 4, 6. We're just going to look at verse 6. And then Acts 16, 4. Uh, but, but let's look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. I have that for you on the screen here. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This is after Paul and Barnabas went out on their missionary journey starting in Acts chapter 13 and planted churches in, in a number of different areas. They went back we're told, and appointed elders for the church, each individual church that they had started. Here's Acts chapter 15 and, uh, and verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now, as we're talking church history, first century church history, um, we, we know that, that the book of Acts is, is talking to us about the development of the church. And as we mentioned in Acts chapter 6, you had the prototype of deacons. That were the seven men that were chosen who were given direction by the apostles who were functioning in a pastoral role at that time. But we just saw in Acts chapter 11 that we know there are already elders in the church of Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 15, there's a theological uh, misunderstanding. There are people who wanted the Jews or the Gentiles who were being saved to go through exactly all the things that the Jews had done before Jesus Christ. And so they were adding all kinds of, they were adding circumcision, they were adding all kinds of other things that they thought that a person had to do to get saved. And Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, it is by faith alone in the work of Christ on the cross. It became an issue. They went to Jerusalem. Again, the main, as we said, the mothership there. And, and they met with the apostles and elders. They are welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem. Next reference that we have here. Acts chapter 16, 4. And again... This is talking about Paul and Barnabas. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people. The, the, the elders, the apostles, came to grips with the teaching, and they said, no, uh, people are saved only by faith in what Jesus did, and, and they put out, made a decision and here's the news of the decision being spread around to the churches and town to town. The decision reached by the apostles and elders, plural, again, in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. Next slide. And all I want you to see is the plurality of this. The reason I left you, this is Paul talking to Titus. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. Uh, Titus was on the island of Crete. He was there with Paul. 
business wasn't finished, Paul says, I want you to stay there, and I want you to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. They had planted churches in the towns around there, and I want you to appoint elders in every town, the church in that town, okay? Next one. We also have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, 12 and 13. Now, again, here's the word elder or pastor or bishop or overseer is not used here, but this is what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. Again, the town of the church of Thessalonica, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you. Those who are in leadership over you. Not the one pastor who is in leadership over you. And he says, they are in leadership over you in the Lord. They give you instruction and in that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, we could go on all morning. We're not going to do that. To study and see that pastoral leadership as I believe, as it's described in the New Testament, that's where the local church started and is talked about, is a plurality issue. Here's a quote um, that I came across just so that you get it uh, by Dave Harvey in a book entitled The Plurality Principle. He says, the New Testament terms for pastor, overseer, or elder, we've talked about them, all talking about the same person are never used to talk about a single leader ruling or governing the church alone. Now, I've read that book. I've studied. I certainly could miss a reference. But the New Testament terms for pastor, overseer, or elder are never... Now, that's, that's a hard word, right? Because it's an absolute. You know, you're not supposed to say never or always. Because there could be an exception right? But never used to talk about a single leader ruling or governing the church alone. You check that out. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we read in the New Testament. So as we work through that, there should be in each local church more than one pastor, elder, or overseer. Think in terms of a pastoral team, not a board, when we redid the church constitution back in 2012, board was all throughout as a reference to the deacons. Deacons or elders, pastors, bishops are never a board. That is a, an American corporate word. It is not a church word. You don't find that kind of leadership in the Bible, okay? So it wasn't a board. Uh, it was a pastoral team. And uh, that, th as we think that through, it's important that we understand when we talk about shared leadership, it is a plurality. When I was in Bible college, one of the things that I first found out when I got there and started studying doctrine and theology was that there was this terminology called plurality of elders. And that was a bad thing. It was like, boy, don't talk about that. And my question as an untaught freshman, you know how freshmen are, right? They know everything, right? Sorry if any of you are freshmen. I know you're not there, but I was, right? And, and, and so what happens is I'm studying, I'm thinking, wait a minute. There are churches all over the place that have many pastors. They have a senior pastor. They have a Back in the day, music pastor wasn't until recently that we started calling him a worship pastor, but we had a Christian education pastor, we had an evangelism pastor, we had a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor, and I said in class, I remember asking the professor, well, wait a minute, we, we call all of these guys pastors, isn't that plurality of elders? If we believe that this is all those terms that we use, pastor, overseer, elder, all mean the same person, a pastor, in our typical, then aren't they, isn't that plurality of elders? Next question. I mean, I, that, that's just where things were. And, and the more I've studied to understand, there is that thing in Scripture, and it's called shared leadership. It's called a plurality of pastors or elders 
Don't be afraid of that. Some people hear that and they immediately jump to the conclusion that that means if you believe in a plurality of elders, the elders run the church, everybody does everything they say, there's nothing to do with the congregation or the body of Christ is the church. That's not what we believe. We're going we're gonna to get to that. But just so you understand, plurality, all right? Study through. Secondly, shared leadership of the church is about accountability. Over the years of pastoring, one of the questions that I would hear regularly is, okay, so um, who holds the pastors accountable? Some would think, oh, the deacons hold the pastors accountable. That's in a system when deacons function as elders, and yet that's not what the Bible says deacons are. They're not elders. They don't function that way. They function as servants because that's what the Bible describes the meaning of the word deacon. And so some would say that, and, and I would say, you know what? I'm, we want our deacons to hold our pastors accountable, but we want the whole church to hold our pastors accountable just like we hold one another accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, there's no difference there. We, don't, we struggle with that because we don't like somebody come up as a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow believer, a fellow follower of Christ. We don't like somebody to come up and say, hey, I saw you do that or I heard you say that. Man, what's wrong? What's going on? You're, you're struggling spiritually. Is there sin in your life? We don't like that. We kind of, we, and yet the Bible says we as brothers and sisters, fellow believers in the church are to help one another, are to love one another. Now, because we typically think that kind of confrontation means we bang them over the head with the Bible. And that's not what it means at all. That's for another day, all right? But accountability. The accountability, typically we say, is for all the church to hold your pastors accountable. I don't have a problem with anybody coming up to me or to, or to Scott or to soon-to-be Pastor Mitch, right? By the way, 6 o'clock tonight, you don't want to miss Mitch and uh, the ordination service that we have. We're going to have a great time together with that. That's a big deal, folks. We are planning to ordain him officially and call him Pastor Mitch. That's a big deal because of what we're studying here about the place of the pastor in the local church. But typically, as you know, when the job is given to everybody, nobody does it, right? You know what I'm saying? We typically say it's anybody's job, everybody's job, anybody's, you know, whoever. But really, it means it's nobody's job. So the whole idea of a plurality of leadership of pastors is that they hold each other accountable. And, and that's how God set it up. It is, again, the whole church ought to be holding me accountable, and, and our deacons ought to be holding me accountable, but our pastoral team also. Significantly, that's part of their responsibility, I believe, to protect uh, each of us from personal wandering in our own walk with God, uh, to protect us from pride. You know, when you have authority as a pastor, pride is right there. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, when you're leading as a pastor, as an elder, don't lord it over the people. Don't think that you crack the whip. Don't play the pastor card. That's not biblical pastoral leadership. But the accountability comes Scott and Mitch and I together as a team hold each other accountable. At least we must do that. And it's critical. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. And then in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, and I don't know if I have that scripture up here, but Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, this is what, what Paul told the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian pastors, he said to them in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which God's called you to lead, to shepherd, to be an overseer. You keep watch over yourselves and the church, but you watch yourselves. You hold each other accountable. It's a mutual accountability. That's part of the pastoral leadership. Shared leadership number three of the church is about unity and interdependence. 
unity and interdependence. And I'm just going to read for you, and if you want to look at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 and the first four verses, this is a great text. And as we talk about that, we as a pastoral team are one, and we need to model that together to the church. That's unity, but it's a dependence upon each other. We need each other, just like the body needs each other. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Paul's talking to the church in Philippi. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, Paul was writing to the whole church, but that certainly applies to the pastoral leadership of the church as well. And there's an area where we need to hold each other accountable, where we need to stand together, where we are one, where we are dependent upon one another, and where we model that same unity and interdependence to the entire church. Because, folks, as a church, as a body of believers, of followers of Christ, we are one. Scripture tells us that over and over and over again. And that's why we talk about the community. Because we need each other. You hang out by yourself as a brother or sister in Christ, you will get yourself in trouble somewhere along the way. Because God, God designed us as social beings and we need each other. That's what the church is about. Next, giftedness. Shared leadership of the church is about giftedness. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but no one pastor is gifted with all the gifts to lead the church. Never has been, never will. The Bible's pretty clear about that. When we talk about it, and you could read through 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and see what the Bible says about spiritual gifts the God-given special ability for service. And what we're told is every person is given a different gift according to the grace of God, as God chooses. That includes pastors. I do not have all of the spiritual gifts. I know you might think so. Well, at least Jane does. Just, that was the joke. Thank you for laughing. I don't have all the gifts. Scott doesn't have all the gifts. Mitch doesn't have all the gifts. There's no pastor in the world in any church that has all the gifts. And yet when we hire a new pastor, a lead pastor, we many times think that that pastor can do it all. But he's not gifted to do it all. So how do we solve that problem? We have other men Two are better than one. Three is even better. And so is four or five. You say, wait a minute, we, how, how do we afford all of that? Well, we'll, we'll get to that later. But, um, and no, I don't have a capital campaign in mind, so it's okay. Some of you are holding on to your wallets and going, oh, no. What? Uh, no, we're not going there. But, but we'll get to that. But, but it's important that we understand that as a team, God has gifted each I'm gifted differently than Mitch is, who's gifted differently than Scott is, who's gifted differently than I am. And even if you get larger churches who have half a dozen or 10 or more pastors, they're all gifted differently. Oh, there may be similarities in the gifting, but God gives gifts to the pastors that he's going to lead his church in accordance with the needs of that church. And God brings those individuals to the church to put them together as a pastoral team, like putting a puzzle together. Only God can do that. Folks, we are meeting this afternoon with our pastoral search team. 
We're looking for the next new lead pastor. Well, we believe that he's going to fit. He's going to be gifted in a way that fits with the team that can minister to this church. And it's critical that we understand that that shared leadership of the church is about giftedness. Shared leadership recognizes human limitations. I can't do it all. Scott can't do it all. Mitch can't do it all. The next new guy can't do it all. No pastor can do it all. That's why we have plurality, shared leadership. That's what. Balance, collaboration, it makes ministry sustainable. Do you ever wonder why sometimes pastors move around so much, so many years? They're, you know, only a couple here, they're a couple there, a couple there, because they get worn out. Because I think for a lot of years, in our churches, I'm not picking on heritage, nor am I saying that we've done it wrong, but I think we can be better. We, we hire a pastor or two or three and think that they can do it all. And yet the Bible says it's the responsibility of the pastor to equip God's people, the church, to do the work of the ministry. And it's vital that we understand God has gifted each of us, gifted me in a certain way, gifted Mitch in a certain way, gifted Scott in a certain way, to do team together to provide leadership for the church. We need each other as pastors and as a church. That's why the illustration of the church is a body. And when Paul talks about that, he says, you know, you, you know the... the uh, the, the, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Pieces of the body, parts of the body, right? Because the church has to walk. Well, if you don't have a foot, well, because the hand, I'm, I'm better. No, read through that. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and you'll see what Paul's talking about. Shared leadership of the church is also about burden sharing. Personally and corporately, there's a great means of encouragement and and mutual sanctification, helping each other grow and become more like Jesus, sharing the burdens. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, and he said, verses 1 and 2, he said to the believers in, in Galatia, he said, when a brother is overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual. Now, sometimes that scares us away because, well, that's not me. I'm not as spiritual as I should be. Oh, I want to be more spiritual, but I'm... That, that, and, and again... We ought to be growing. It doesn't mean that you're the most mature saint that ever walked the face of the earth. It doesn't mean that you're as every bit as good as Paul was or as any apostle or pastor in the Bible was. But what it means is we're walking with God. You who are spiritual, who are living by the Spirit, who are exercising the fruit of the Spirit. If you go back up into Galatians chapter 5, you'll see what Paul talks about. But he says, when you see your brother or sister taken in a, in a sin, you should restore him. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but that's the burden sharing. And then he goes on verse 2 and he says, bear one another's burdens, carry each other's burdens. We as a pastoral team need to do that. But so do we as an entire church. And then 6, Shared leadership of the church, if I would wrap it all up, is about serving as a team. You've heard all the acrostics, team, T-E-A-M, right? Together, everyone achieves more. T-E-A-M, together, E, everyone, A, achieves M, more. We hear that, and, and we think, oh, it's a cute cliche, yeah, real, right? It's true. And it does work. It's just like, no, you, you can have, pick any sport you want. And sometimes you can have a team that has the greatest talent and athletes possible, but they never win the games or the big championship. Why? Because they don't work as a team. They work as individuals. That's critical for the pastoral leadership to work together to accomplish God's plan and will and purpose for his church. The idea is shared leadership models how the church ought to function. 
we together as a team. The pastors are to be an example to the body of what a follower of Jesus looks like, about how the body should function. We do that as a pastoral team, just like we want the church to function as one. Paul says it this way in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Well, I should say the writer to the book of Hebrews. All right? We don't know that it was Paul, but remember your leaders, plural, who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As a team, we ought to be modeling for you how to be like Jesus. You ought to imitate our faith, our walk with God. That's what, as a team together, and, and, and functioning as a team, you say, well, aren't we doing that? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I was a youth pastor at a church, and um, we had, it was a larger church. We had a half a dozen on our pastoral staff, and every once in a while, we pastor would say, Glenn, would you go make a call in the hospital on such and such person? And I would say, sure, I'd be glad to do that. Enjoyed doing that. But I also knew that it wasn't a real visit because I was just the youth pastor. Now, I'm not angry or upset. I'm making fun or anything. I wasn't the real deal. I wasn't the top dog, right? And to people in the church, if the real pastor didn't come, I was just the substitute that would get by till the real pastor could get it into his schedule to get it done. Now you say, really? Yes. But if I'm a pastor and he's a pastor, what difference does it make who makes the visit as long as the pastor is there visiting and shepherding the flock? But see, that's, see it would be a big deal. And, and folks, I love you. I do as a church. You're amazing. Some would years ago or in some churches, if Pastor Scott was up in the baptistry this morning rather than me because, well, you're the lead pastor. How come you're not up? Scott's a pastor. He's every bit as much a pastor as I am. I don't need to be in that tank because there's nothing more special about my putting him under the water than Scott's putting him under the water or Pastor David putting him under the water. See, that's the difference. When we talk about a leadership team, your pastors are one. Yes, there is a leader. There's the, what we call first among equals, but we are equal before God as pastors. We have different gifts. We have different roles. We have different responsibilities, but a pastoral team functions together to lead God's church. And as we talk about that's critical. Let me just wrap this up. Three thoughts. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7, 17, and 18. This is a great text, and I would encourage you to study it, read the entire chapter, and figure it out. But here, number one, the biblical pattern for the leadership of the church is, um, let, me, let me go back to number one there. The biblical pattern for the leadership of the church is a team of God-ordained pastors. So what you need to understand about the leadership of the church is that the biblical pattern, I believe, if, and, and, and listen, I can be, I, I can be taught. I want to always be teachable. Even at age 70, I'm not done learning, folks. The biblical pattern for the leadership of the church is a team of God-ordained pastors. And that's what, as we read the writer of the book of Hebrews in verse 7 of Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate. We just read that earlier. But Paul also had said to the Ephesian pastors, the Ephesian elders, he said, you who God chose, the Spirit directed, God ordained. That's why we say it that way. Secondly, have confidence in your pastors as those who are accountable to watch over your lives. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you 
as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. We are one as a church, and we are a family. And every church, every family has problems. And folks, when we have problems, we don't run. We work them out. That's what families do. That's what churches do. We stand together. Have confidence in your leaders. That's number two. And in your pastors as those who are accountable to watch over you. And then thirdly, I'll just simply say this. Pray for your pastors. And I know you do. Many people always tell, hey, I'm praying for you. And I'm like, please, thank you. Keep it up. Double it. (laughs) Triple it. Verse 18 of Hebrews 13. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, pray for us. Pray for us. And so as we think about shared leadership, folks, here's our responsibility, your responsibility. The, bi- the biblical pattern for the leadership of the church is a team of God or named pastors. What do you do? You have confidence, you trust your pastors, and you pray. And God will build his church for his glory. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. God, we need you. You've given us direction And we want to follow your pattern in every way. So God, help us as a church to be all that you intended us to be. Help us to care for one another. Help us to bear each other's burdens. Help us to not be afraid to encourage each other when we're struggling to pray for each other. God, to move forward. And I pray, Father, that we as pastors would be the kind of leaders that you have called us to be, that we would be walking close to you each day to be the leaders that you called us to be. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.